0: Hey guys, three pieces of housekeeping today. First, is that this is part three of a series on the Opium Wars. And unlike the first two, this one probably requires you to listen to the previous two, so if you are just coming to our show here, uh, first, thank you for uh, listening. Second, you might want to listen to those two before getting to this one. Second, you're going to start hearing some sponsors and ads pop up in our show, We've grown big enough to be able to start doing that, and um, I'll just let you know on the onset, for those of you guys who really don't like ads, they'll always be at the beginning or they will be right after the title drop, so uh, so, you know, ahead of time and you don't feel like it comes out of nowhere for you. It's because of you guys that we're even able to have sponsors in the first place, and if anybody had told me that we'd be making money off of this, um, I think I would have thought they were crazy, but um, thank you. And third, a little bit of bragging on our co producer, Katie. She probably wouldn't let me put this into the final edit, except for the part where she doesn't actually do the editing and she currently has headphones on, so she can't hear me. Uh, she just got her master's in psychology over the weekend, which is probably why this episode is dropping late. We just came back from a flight from that. Um, but if you get a chance, congratulate her on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. The handles on those are High Crimes in History, except for Twitter, which is High Crimes History.
1: This episode is based off the works The Opium Wars, The Addiction of One Empire and the Corruption of Another by W. Travis Haynes and Frank Sinello, The Opium War, Drugs, Dreams, and the Making of Modern China by Julia Lovell, and Through American Eyes. The Journals of George Washington Farley Heard, edited by Jillian Bickley. This episode contains descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for everyone. Please use discretion before listening. Finally, if you or someone you know struggles with opiate addiction, please call the National Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP for confidential help to find state and local support for treatment.
0: I always like to ask veterans about their experiences in the war. Quite a few don't like to talk about them, and I understand that. But sometimes they do open up, which is always a wonderful treat. First, because I'm a historian, and getting these experiences is what I do now for a living. And two, because I firmly believe that if the human race wants to prevent war, they need to hear from the people who lived through it what they went through in order to remind ourselves why we wanted to stop it in the first place. So I was talking to a Vietnam vet about a year ago on his experiences in the war, and one experience he brought up really surprised me. It was how one night while on guard duty, he came across a soldier passed out in the road, unmoving. He didn't respond. When they pulled him to the medical ward, they realized that he was overdosing on heroin. So that's unusual, but what drew me in was then he described another incident a few days later of the exact same situation, a different person, and then another one, and then another one. So I asked him, wait, so it was like, drugs a problem? And he looked at me and he said, well, yeah, heroin was a real problem. Everyone was addicted. The only reason people came off of it was because Nixon told them that they wouldn't come back otherwise. It was get clean and come home, or stay here and be addicted. So people chose to get clean. And I thought this was fascinating. I had no idea it had been such a problem in the Vietnam War. I ended up looking into the CIA's and Department of Defense's reports, and sure enough, 28% of Vietnam soldiers, while stationed there, had taken cocaine or heroin. Hard drugs. In addition to that, The military supplied amphetamine tablets to soldiers, 225 million of them. And the withdrawals were terrible. And, to cap it all off, 20% of soldiers were addicted to heroin. In other words, they were continual users. Heroin flowed over the border from Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. This heroin had been made by opium planted there. That opium trade had flourished because the United States, just two decades earlier had funded the warlords there in order to protect against the southern border of China, and therefore against communism, the boogeyman of the 1950s. And of course, how did these warlords make their trade? Well, through opium. And if we're adding to that, why was communism even such a problem in China? Because the fall of the Qing Empire had so destabilized the country that it created a power vacuum in which communism was able to take hold after a long and bitter series of wars. And that fall was directly tied to the prevalence of opium addiction in China. And the Chinese Communist government knew this. Chow en Enlai, the first premier of the Republic of China, remarked at a dinner with the president of Egypt, quote, One of the remarkable things he said that night when talking about the demoralization of the American soldiers in Indochina was that, this is now in his words, quote, some of them are trying opium, and we are helping them. We are planting the best kinds of opium, especially for the American soldiers in Vietnam, end quote. Later on, he wrote in his book, The Cairo Documents, quote, do you remember when the West imposed opium on us? They fought us with opium. And we are going to fight them with their own weapons. We are going to use their own methods against them." Now whether that's true or not, it's always weird to see how far the tendrils of history can reach. Did the British opium trade in China during the 19th century cause the 750,000 heroin addicts in the United States by 1970? You can certainly make an argument that enough dominoes fell between the two. And while certainly other factors were involved, opium was one of the chief ones. We mentioned at the end of the last episode that the first opium war began what Chinese nationalists called the Century of Humiliation. That humiliation was tied directly to the opium trade that had been put in place before the war, exacerbated in the conflict, and would lead to the destruction of the empire as we know it. And even now, in 2019 we are still paying the reparations for that destruction. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History.
1: High Crimes in History is supported by Best Fiends. When we need a break from researching gritty history, we play Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual puzzle game that you can play from your phone anywhere. Beat levels and collect fiends, all while engaging with fun gameplay that you can take on the go. I personally love this game. I'm level 185 and play it whenever I can. Waiting to pick up a prescription, traveling as a passenger in the car, or as a break from graduate work. It's easy to pick up and learn, and it engages the brain with challenging puzzles that are satisfying to complete. My favorite part is the events. Right now, there's a Christmas-themed event going on with all the slugs dressed up in Santa hats. It's cute and hilarious, and I just love trying to unlock the next costume. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends.
0: In the aftermath of the First Opium War, England continued to wallow in its self-triumph. Newspapers printed drawings of the Nemesis carving through Chinese junks. Papers jeered at the Chinese, calling them, quote, the vast hordes, ignorant and superstitious, end quote. Charles Dickens referred to them as this glory of yellow jaundice, and the Chinese junk as the symbol of the waste and desert of time of the Chinese civilization. The quick and painless victory, for Britain at least, convinced most British citizens that the war, whether moral or not, had been a necessity for the world. To open China to the trade of the world, never mind that the Chinese had been forced to, and that the trade would be opium. In China, no one wanted to engage with the British in any sort of trade, especially the laborers who would have to work in the British factories on the wharfs of Chinese cities. One Chinese commissioner in Canton wrote in 1849, "...popular anger soars to the point of wanting to eat the Britons' flesh and sleep on their skin. Persuasion is useless." China was already under a lot of stress by the end of the First Opium War. Remember, China is a large empire, and large empires are, by their very nature, unstable. Typically, an empire grows about as large as it can get before it's teetering on rebellions it can't handle, and then it just stays there until it gets a rebellion that it can't handle. In 1850, that rebellion that it might not be able to handle hits hard, and it's known as the Taiping Rebellion. The Taiping Rebellion has the entire South China already up in arms by this point. It's the largest war in the entire 19th century of any nation. In the first opium war, some 20,000 Chinese had been killed. In the Taiping Rebellion, it's going to be 20 million, a thousand times the first opium war. And what ties it to the opium wars is that the rebellion is fueled largely by a hatred of opium. The Taiping thought that the Qing had intentionally tried to encourage the opium trade because they wanted to enslave the Chinese. One leader stated, quote, "...the Manchus have poisoned the body and soul of our nation. Each year, 50 million taels worth of opium—that's an opium ball—is consumed. In every matter, they have violated our moral principles, and each rule is designed to dominate our people." The common people have been trapped and are sinking farther in great danger. I'm not really sure you can blame them for thinking this either. In 1851, an estimated 90% of the emperor's army was addicted to opium. And this hatred of opium was tied to a religious, cult like fervor. The leader of the Taiping, Hong Quan, had seen visions and read the Bible, and had concluded that he was the brother of Jesus, making him a son of God, and that he had been sent to destroy the emperor and his demons. No, really, like, literal demons. As in, they were like demons in the flesh. Obviously, you don't want demons at the head of your government. Personally, I would just take the lizard men over them. And yes, all this sounds quite crazy— but it was wonderful to the masses. Hong preached a type of communism. His slogan was, plunder the rich to relieve the poor. Every time they plundered a city, all the loot was shared equally. And all the vices, alcohol, gambling, tobacco, even sex, were forbidden. And of course, that includes opium. If you were in an area that the Taiping controlled, if you found someone smoking opium, That person would be lucky if they were beheaded. Because if they weren't, they'd be beaten to death with a thousand blows. And I mean, if that sounds better, just start hitting yourself over and over and start counting the seconds. And remember that that's going to have to go up to a thousand. If you think all this is strange, too, well, women were equals as well, holding positions in the army and in the government. I mean, this is a terrifying cult-like society... But it's also really enticing to a group of people who want to see the entire social order remade. By 1851, their army was one million strong, and they were taking cities across southern China, including Nanking, and slaughtering every Manchu they came in contact. Remember, their demons. They would be singled out, men, women, and children. And as the god Worshipers, as they called themselves, prayed for their souls, the Manchus were set alight. The next decade would see the Taiping and the Emperor's forces squaring off, constantly sieging either Peking, the Emperor's capital, or Nanking, the Taiping's capital, with millions in the middle being slaughtered. So to the Emperor, even after their defeat by the British, their concerns are just kind of a sideshow, and can you really blame them? This would be like if the United States was embroiled in this massive civil war, with tens of millions dead on either side, the cities burning, famine starving the population, the government on the verge of collapse, and somebody's like, hey, you know those cartels on the border? They're really giving our custom officials a hard time. We should do something about them. I mean, let's be honest, there's bigger fish to fry at that moment. But that's not to say that the government doesn't hate the British but the Chinese government isn't exactly keen on doing anything about it when they're facing a civil war. So whenever Chinese officials didn't hold up their side of the Treaty of Nanking, the treaty that ended the First Opium War, like, doing things like uh, impeding the British from residing in Canton, or there'd be like a flare-up of violence where some British and Cantonese citizens would get into a brawl that ends with someone dead, I mean, the British are obviously furious, but the Chinese are basically telling them, yeah, sorry, but we can't really deal with this right now, come back later. As you can imagine, the British aren't okay with that. The Prime Minister of Britain in 1853 and 1855 summed up the British sentiment succinctly. Quote, These half-civilized governments all require addressing every eight or ten years to keep them in order. If we, the Chinese, to resume, as they no will doubt be always endeavoring to do, their former tone of superiority... We shall very soon be compelled to come to blows with them again. A treaty unsupported by guns is waste paper. End quote. Add to that that Britain was still at a trade deficit in the 1850s, and that the only thing they could still reliably sell to China was opium, and you can see where this is going. In 1856, all it took was the seizure of one Chinese smuggler ship by the Chinese officials. That might seem a very strange reason for Britain to go to war, but the smugglers had been flying the British flag. Never mind that they weren't British in any way, shape, or form, or that they even had been, uh, their registration was expired, and therefore unlawful to fly any flag whatsoever. It was the principle of the matter to the British that counted. This is like ending up in a war with a country after seizing an unlawful vessel of your own citizens and your own ship in your own harbor, just because it painted the flag of the other country on the side of its boat, and you go to war with that other country that had nothing to do with any of that. That's how immensely wrong this situation is. By October 29th, 1856, the British were shelling Canton again. As Canton burst into flames, as shells burned through the city, one British merchant celebrated, quote, "'We are so strong and so right.'" We must write a bright page in our history. That page was to become the Second Opium War. In fairness to the British, the violence that broke out in Canton was not well received back home. In fact, it actually led to a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister Palmerston's government and a re election that Palmerston didn't win handily, but it wouldn't have even mattered. Remember, China's on the other side of the world, from Britain. Palmerston had already given instruction to go ahead with a military campaign to force China to legalize opium and open up not just the ports, but the inner regions of China to the British trade. He'd already allied with France, the United States, and Russia months before the vote was ever counted. One satirical newspaper commented, quote, We have gone too far to recede. Tell the Admiral to blaze away. My heart bleeds for these infatuated Chinese." Blaze away they did. On December 27th, 1857, a year after the siege had begun, British and French ships opened up with a day-long bombardment of incendiary rockets and artillery shells. The Chinese responded with just two shells of their own. As the Europeans advanced, Chinese soldiers fired bows and jingles, these large firearms, so large that they required two men to fire them, and then the force of the shot would actually knock them to the ground. The Europeans literally laughed as they killed them. Canton fell on December 29th. By May of 1858, they were sailing north, French and British soldiers, to attack the five mud Dagü forts, on the Bei Hei River, protecting the route to Peking. They were just 100 miles from the capital of the Qing Empire. There they expected to smash the forts much as they had in the First Opium War, but they found that they were wrong. The Qing, in their decade-long fight with the Taiping still going on during this time, had learned. The Dagu forts had a natural moat surrounding the fort, and a half-foot-thick bamboo boom it's a floating barrier, right in front of the fort. The British rammed a ship straight through the boom, and the infantry poured ashore. As the infantry landing parties rowed, the French and British soldiers found out, to their horror, that pits had been dug on the riverbank. The boats mired in the muck, and then the fort's guns opened up, and they were zeroed in on that muck. Quote, I never saw nor could have dreamt of such a smash, one participant wrote, describing survivors missing arms and legs while corpses left strewn over the bank were beheaded by Qing soldiers. Our loss is awful. 500 British alone died, another 450 wounded. But even through the horrific casualties, the assault succeeded, and the Europeans continued on. By the time they reached Tianjin on June 4th, 1858, the emperor had sent emissaries for peace. Russia, France, the United States, and Britain signed what became known as the Treaties of Tianjin, gaining the same status as Britain did of what's known as the most favored nation, meaning that they would get whatever Britain got as well. What Britain wanted was the opium trade. The Chinese legalized the opium trade by setting an amount that the Chinese could tax it. By stating that the good was taxed, it effectively meant that the opium trade was now legalized. But this diplomatic victory for the Europeans was short-lived. On June 18, 1859, about a year later, when a European fleet showed back up at the river to enforce the treaty, the Chinese had laid down bamboo booms to block them from sailing the river. The Chinese had no intention of honoring the treaty. They had just been buying time. Rear Admiral James Hope ordered five of his steamers to bombard the Chinese on the shore and to ram through the booms, but the Chinese were prepared again. An American diplomat by the name of George Washington Hurd was accompanying the Europeans aboard the steamer Nimrod, and wrote in his diary an account that sounds like it's a D-Day landing on Omaha Beach in World War II, but in this case, it was in 1859. The Nimrod and the gunboats were firing shot and shell, and rockets to protect the stormers and cover their landing. The red sun was just going down behind the middle fort as they landed, and it was a wild-looking sight. The whistling of the small balls, the fierce roar of the heavy ones, and the bursting of the shell and rockets made the little Toei Wan, another ship, tremble all over. A great many shots struck all about the Toei, but not one hit the boat itself. One shot passed between the awning and the deck between Mr. Ward and myself, and fell into the water within ten or thirteen feet of her counter, and a great many fell between us and the Frenchmen, who were anchored on our right. As we found afterwards, the boats of the storming party could not approach near the shore as the water was so shallow. And as soon as the boats touched, a good many of the men jumped out and sank in up to their necks in the mud and water, in which position several were drowned before they could extricate themselves. Those who got to the shore wet their powder so none of them could return a shot, and the fire from the forts was so fatal that a great many were killed. It was estimated that a hundred men were lost during the landing alone. When they got to the shore, there they found there was a deep ditch through which they had to wade waist-deep, "'then a little hard mud, then another ditch filled with mud and water "'that could only be passed in swimming, "'and then there was a third ditch filled with mud and water "'and sharp iron spikes and lances. "'Very few of the men got up to the walls of the forts, "'which were about twenty-five foot high, "'and swarming with men who fired at them with rifles, jingles, and arrows, "'which were very long and barbed in such a manner "'that when the arrow entered the flesh, "'the head detached itself and remained in the wound.' The few men who succeeded in getting to the walls tried to scale them with ladders, but the ladders broke, and they found there was no safety but in flight. Captains Comerall of the Nimrod and Heath of the Assistants told me that when they were at the foot of the walls, they had to lie close in under them, and as soon as a head was seen, the Chinese sent a bullet through it. That the Chinese were armed with real mini-rifles and were large men wearing fur caps. Captain Comerall, who was in Crimea, says he repeatedly heard the Russian word for powder cried within the walls, and a good many of the marines who were in the same position heard the same word used. Several men declare they heard in good English, Why the devil don't you pass the powder up? Whether this latter was the effect of their imagination or not, I don't know, but I am inclined to believe what Captain Camarol says. I think there were other men than Chinamen inside the walls, probably some runaway sailors or mercenary Russians. They understood the science of gunnery too well not to have been trained to their guns, and they stood to them well. The Chinese burnt blue lights as soon as it was dark and shot down the men by their lights. End quote. It's such a visceral account. You could just visualize it. The men wading ashore with gunfire, the arrows erupting little fountains of water all around them. It's just about the opposite of what the Europeans had encountered in the Opium Wars thus far. And it's deadly. Admiral Hope immediately was shot with a musket ball. And while the surgeon was operating on the deck, a cannonball exploded, a direct hit that blew his second-in-command and eight others apart. He had survived, but when he finally took command back, another cannonball shattered the reeling of the deck he was holding to keep himself up. He fell to the main deck, shattering his leg in the process. By the time he ordered a retreat, five British ships were immobilized. And another was grounded. One survivor wrote, I never saw nor could have dreamt of such a smash, describing the limbs blown apart and the beheaded corpses left floating in the tide. Another 500 men had been killed, and another 500 after that wounded. For the second time, the Chinese had drawn real blood on the Europeans. The British and French returned in April of 1860 with 2,500 men who occupied the island of Chusan that controlled the entrance to the Yangtze River. They brought with them Armstrong Field Guns, this 25-pounder that shot with the accuracy of a rifle that could devastate armies at range with fragmentation ammunition that would rain thousands of pieces of white-hot shrapnel on the Chinese horsemen. On July 26th, 150 British ships landed near Tang, 8 miles from the Dagu Forts, under pouring rain that was so thick that when the troops were mired into the mud up to their thighs, it sucked their trousers right off when they tried to extricate themselves. The defenders had already fled, and the town was unoccupied by no one but Chinese citizens, who were immediately set upon with rape and looting. Some of the women chose to commit suicide via opium overdose rather than be subject to, To the slaughter. This was actually fairly common in the Second Opium War. Another incident later in the war at Zhang Jiawan is fairly graphic in its description. Haines writes Soldiers came upon a ghastly scene at one opium den filled with women, ranging in age from toddlers to late middle age. Most of the women had committed suicide by overdosing on opium. But heavy users had developed such a tolerance for the drug that their deaths took longer and were still alive when the Europeans found them. Swin Ho, a witness, recalled, "...the more conscious of them, beating their breast, condemned the opium for its slow work, crying out, Let us die! We do not wish to live!" Their dying wish was refused. A British chaplain sent for an army surgeon who pumped the victim's stomachs with such success that only one of the victims still alive when the troops arrived perished." I think that exact same situation could be applied in many places in this war. A week later, on August 3rd, 2,000 men met the Chinese cavalry on a stone causeway carving a path through the marshes. The Chinese were armed with flintlock muskets and bows and arrows. The cautious British commander, General Hope Grant, waited another week until he could assemble his own cavalry to ride around and entrap them before attacking. Haynes writes again, quote, "...the defenders were fearless. As their comrades on either side of them were blown apart by the Armstrongs, those field guns we mentioned, the remaining cavalry continued to approach the invaders until they got within 450 yards when the effectiveness of the guns at such close range finally halted the advance after 25 minutes of terror." The suicidal valor of the defenders impressed their opponents. Major General Sir Robert Napier, commander of the 2nd Division under Hope Grant, wrote, "...they bore unflinchingly for a considerable time such a fire as would have tried any troops in the world." The Chinese had been stopped but not turned back. As Sikhs gunned them down with carbines and pistols from a safe distance, the Chinese responded with spears and arrows. Lieutenant Colonel J.G. Walsley said that he never saw such men come on so pluckily. Although outnumbered, the better-armed Sikhs finally forced the Chinese to flee, but the Punjabi's horse got stuck in the mud, and the terrain prevented what would have been an inevitable bloodbath if the Sikhs had been able to pursue the Chinese cavalry who fled to the safety of the Dagu forts." The British and the French pursue the cavalry back to the Dagu forts. where this time, they decide to pound the northernmost fort with a bombardment so heavy that when one 8-inch shell hit the gunpowder depot inside, it exploded upon the Chinese defenders. 2,000 lay dead as the British and French scaled the walls literally on the backs of the Chinese coolies that were allied with the Europeans as makeshift ladders. Inside, the Chinese commander refused to surrender. Quote, so a tired Captain Pryn of the Royal Marines pulled out his revolver and shot the Mandarin dead, taking his peacock feather cap as a trophy of war. End quote. 9,000 more Chinese surrendered. When the commanders of the remaining forts offered a chance to parley, the British commander, Harry Parks, literally ripped up Fang's letter, threw it in the face of their emissaries, and screamed at them that if they didn't give up in two hours, they were going to suffer the exact same fate. Before the two hours had expired, white flags were fluttering over the remaining forts. As an aside, this is also one of the very first wars photographed. And you can actually go online and find the photographs from the battles at the Dagu forts. And they're awful. The bodies, some missing arms and legs blown apart, are just littering the ground in the parapets of the forts. But that was intentional. The photographer, an Italian by the name of Felix Beto, wanted to capture the sheer massacre. Lovell writes, quote, As the dying groaned in agony, an ecstatic Beto... "...fussed about the carnage, pronouncing it beautiful, and insisting none of the corpses should be moved until he had captured them for posterity, strewn about the siege ladders and wooden posts of the forts, their heads lolling from their dislocated necks." The photos would serve as excellent propaganda back home. The city of Tianjin was retaken without any casualties, ...15 miles from the Emperor's palace in Peking. The Chinese well understood the significance. The last time an army had arrived this close... ...200 years earlier, a dynasty had fallen. Desperate, when the ambassadors of Britain... ...including Harry Parks... ...came to negotiate the terms of surrender... ...they seized them as hostages... ...bound them... ...and carted them back to the Summer Palace... ...for humiliation in front of the Emperor. After being deprived of food and water for three days... On their knees with bindings so tight that they caused the hands to become gangrenous and infected, some of them died. The Chinese commander in charge of the defense of the capital, Prince Tseng, dug in at a roadblock. His 20,000 troops spanned a three-mile-wide corridor against the paltry 3,500 French and British troops. But as we've already learned from the past war, numbers mean nothing when a medieval army meets the modern. On September 17th, the Chinese army attempted an encirclement, and it was a slaughter for them. Quote, The horsemen charged, but the cavalry of the Europeans countercharged, penetrating the troops, and the French artillery continued to pound the back lines to the point where panic set in with the cavalry, and they began to retreat, but as they started to try to cross the nearby river, the Sikhs chased after the enemy and bayoneted anybody that they could find farther down in a separate engagement by the British in the same area, quote, Hope Grant thought a horde of Mongol horsemen in the distance were French soldiers and didn't open fire on the enemy. The Mongols mistook Hope Grant's forbearance for cowardice and charged. As the cavalry drew near, the British realized who they were and at close range blew the Mongols to pieces with field guns, including the deadly, accurate Armstrongs. End quote. I don't know if you've ever seen what... Artillery cannon looks like at close range, something like a hundred yards, one hundred and fifty yards. But at that sort of range, if something hits you, there's literally nothing left to document. The Chinese army fled, and on October seventh, the French marched into the Summer Palace to the shouts of five hundred unarmed eunuchs shouting at them, quote, "Don't commit sacrilege! Don't come within the sacred precincts." Those that didn't flee were shot dead where they stood. The emperor was nowhere to be found. He had already fled to somewhere 200 miles away, and the Europeans set to looting this ancient palace of its tribute, ripping jewel and marble off the walls themselves. In a show of force, they burned the summer palace to the ground after stripping it of at least 30 million francs worth of valuables. On October 24th, the British marched into the Antung Gate, the last bastion of Peking, without a single shot, freeing the 19 British prisoners still left alive out of the original 29 hostages. With artillery aimed at the inner city, the Chinese were forced to sign the Convention of Peking. It was non-negotiable. $10 million in reparations, the area around Hong Kong ceded to Britain, Tianjin opened as a trade port, the freedom of religion to be practiced, the allowance of the exportation of indentured Chinese as virtual slaves by the British back to the Americas, and the opium trade to be officially legalized. And remember, all of this was over the opium trade. Make no mistake. Some historians argue that the opium wars weren't just about opium, that it was about the imperial supremacy over China, their perceived insults towards foreigners, European racism, trade disparity. And that's all well and true, but it all takes a back seat to the opium trade itself. It's impossible to imagine the wars occurring over, like, a trade disparity on, say, clothing or pianos, both real imports that the British were pushing, by the way because no one gets addicted to clothing or pianos. Addiction is what fuels a continual need for more imports. I mean, let's put this in context. In 1859, before the Second Opium War began, Britain was importing 58,000 chests of opium. Twenty years later, after the war had ended, the market had doubled. More and more opium dens opened across China, not just in the southern states, but stretching as far as the northern border one witness described them, quote, They are wretched, dark places, with little lamps. The opium looks like treacle, and the smokers are haggard and stupefied, except at the moment of inhaling when an unnatural brightness sparkles from their eyes. End quote. This opium trade continues to devastate China to a greater and greater extent. And remember, they're already unstable as it is. The Chinese continued to request that the British end the opium trade, but by the 1870s it was clear that that wasn't going to happen, so they did the next best thing. If you can't beat them, join them. The Chinese, in an effort to undercut the British profits, began to cultivate their own source of opium, and as a result, domestic opium ballooned. Because opium became so cheap, consumption climbed dramatically. By 1888, the Times of London reported that 70% of adult males were addicted, which is an over-exaggeration, but not as much as you'd think. When Japan invaded China in 1937, it is well documented that 10% of the population, somewhere between 40 to 50 million Chinese, were addicted to opium. That's men, women, children, rich, poor. In areas of high opium sales, especially in the South, The numbers were even bigger. For example, 30% of Hong Kong citizens, which was a British colony, were addicted to the drug. The royal household itself was so devastated by the addiction that it literally led to the death of some of them. Dowager Empress Sixi was addicted to opium. And Wan Zheng, the second wife of Emperor Puyi, the last emperor of China, smoked two ounces a day. I actually don't know how much two ounces a day was, so I looked it up. It's about enough to kill most people who are new to opium. When she was seized by the communists, the withdrawal literally killed her. Her last days were chronicled by a Japanese witness, Hiro Saga. They wrote, quote, "'Wan Zheng became a grotesque tourist attraction, an object lesson, in the evils of opium addiction.'" Soldiers and civilians gathered outside her cell door, giggling and gossiping about the prisoner's pathetic condition. Wan Zheng pleaded, then screamed for opium and made such a racket, other prisoners petitioned for her execution. She sank into a feverish delusion that she had returned to the Winter Palace and ordered non existent servants to wait on her and fetch her opium pipe. The delirium turned into merciful unconsciousness during which she soiled herself with feces, urine, and vomit. Her guards refused to enter her cell because of the stench, and the once pampered mistress of the Forbidden City died of malnutrition and dehydration. Because China felt that they had to undercut the British trade with their own domestication of opium, they had effectively catalyzed their own demise. But China did not blame foreigners in as much as they blamed their own leadership. One Chinese victim of the 1860 looting of Peking offered this analysis. Quote, Some blamed heaven for this unprecedented chaos, but how, I say, can you deny it was brought upon us by human error? Our nation's troubles began with Lin Zexu and Yu Gian. Oh, if I could eat their flesh. Lin stole the foreigners' ships and destroyed their opium. As a result, they became angry and found a pretext for war. End quote. The historian Jiajie also commented, quote, "...worms only appear in a rotten carcass. It was not until exaction followed exaction, and justice was denied to creditors, that the foreigners turned upon us. Opium only came because profits being impossible by fair means, the foreigners were driven to obtain them by foul means." End quote. Lovell makes a really good point that the Chinese didn't even see the wars as some imperialist plot to bring China to its knees, even to the point where they didn't dignify the opium wars as wars until the 1920s, when Chinese nationalism takes root. One contemporary Chinese newspaper stated, quote, "...70% of Chinese can no longer extricate themselves from the habit. Their lives fall, drop by drop, into the opium box, and their souls flicker away in the light of the opium lamp." When stung, they feel no pain. When kicked, their wilted bones fail to rise. Since most of our countrymen wreck themselves by smoking opium, they represent our listless nation. End quote. Even here, the Chinese blamed their own countrymen, not any foreign nation, over opium addiction. And honestly, it's kind of hard to blame them when you start looking at it. This century of humiliation, as it's called, sees numerous defeats... ...for the Chinese, starting with the First Opium War, the Taiping Rebellion, and then the Second Opium War. Think about it this way. The Taiping Rebellion ends after the death of Hong Zhukuan in 1864. But by that point, the empire was so destabilized that it never recovered. Continual intrusions by foreign powers, particularly France, Japan, Russia, and Britain, continued to take territory from the Chinese the Sino-French War, the First Sino-Japanese War, the Japanese Invasion of Manchuria, the Second Sino-Japanese War, the British Invasion of Tibet, and of course the biggest one, the Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the 20th century, leads to a full invasion by eight separate different nations that puts down the Chinese Empire. While you could blame the foreign nations for their intrusion, inevitably Chinese began to ask themselves why they were even being able to intrude to begin with. Where had their power their might as the world's most powerful empire for hundreds of years, where had that gone? This question is what led to the massive amount of civil unrest in China. In 1911, the Qing Empire finally fell in revolution and was replaced with the Republic of China, but it swiftly devolved into interwars between warlords and the Chinese Civil War, in which communists eventually won control and immediately turned to modernizing China. And part of that was getting rid of opium addiction. By the 1910s, a large anti-opium push had begun in China as tens of thousands of people worked to shut down opium dens and open detox centers. Much of this was ham-fisted and untested by Christian missionaries. Some of their cures include, "...miracle pills containing pomegranate skin, camphor, capiscum, quinine, belladonna, arsenic, and cocaine." Others subjected their patients to hypnotism, tai chi, radio, religion, and flannel underwear. Others again treated smokers with morphine pills, which the locals promptly christened Jesus opium. Red heroin pills, rumored to contain a virgin's first menstrual blood, were like two. One ex-smoker enthusiastically endorsed a Hong Kong clinician's cure consisting principally of morphine injections. End quote. And... Should all of that fail, there was always the age-old throw them in a jail and give them a pot of coffee. Whereas, one addict claimed, quote, "...opium took us to paradise. Now, in this prison, we are tortured in hell." End quote. Many of these addicts died due to withdrawals or simply because they could not function in society without opium, and they lost their jobs and died on the streets from starvation. By 1906, the government was publicly backing this campaign. In 1907, the anti-opium lobbying groups in Great Britain shamed the parliament into signing a deal to cut opium imports in China if China cut back on domestic trade of the drug. But farmers refused to destroy their product. They held demonstrations and petitioned the government to allow them to continue making the product. Hell, wives of Yeomen were screaming at the soldiers, you may kill us, but we will grow opium. And the bribes to soldiers led to situations in which, quote, poppy extermination squads would simply tap the flowers with their swords, End quote. Opium was too ingrained in China, too loved, too useful, too common. Even the nationalist government needed the opium trade to begin their modernization of China. Opium duties were the lifeblood of tax revenue between 1927 and 1937. In 1933 alone, the opium trade brought in $2 billion, 5.2 of the country's GDP. It didn't matter that the national government had outlawed the use of opium again in 1928. It was profiting off its backs. When the Japanese invaded Manchuria at the start of the Second World War, one-sixth of Manchuria's revenue— ...that they drew in was from opium sales. It wasn't until 1949, when Mao Zedong's communist government came to power, after the Chinese Civil War... ...that the government truly turned to quashing opium addiction. Certainly, Mao had profited off of opium just as much as the next dictator. Let's not forget, in the early 1940s, opium had accounted for 40% of the revenue of his armies... ...and had literally saved them from destruction. But when he finally wrested control from the nationalist government, he understood that an addicted country would become just another wrecked country. He had learned the lessons of the Qing Empire. He instituted his policies with a brutality seldom seen. Opium addicts were forced into treatment. Those that did not rehabilitate were carted off to labor camps or executed. The poppy fields of southern China were burned the opium trade that remained moved south into Cambodia and Laos, where it would be grown and find itself in the hands of the American soldier laying in a torrent of rain and mud, the same one that that Vietnam vet described to me in the beginning of the episode. So the tendrils of history continue to reach ever outward. Hong Kong, the British territory, was given back to the Chinese in 1997, but a century and a half of democracy and Western culture had embedded itself deep into the population. China's attempts to enforce their own communist values of unity in Hong Kong are met with violence playing out on the streets today. And so the tendrils of history continue. Heroin smuggling of 50 grams or more still incurs the death penalty, for which 10,000 Chinese are executed every year. In 2009, British citizen Akma Shaki was the first foreigner executed in 60 years for heroin smuggling, and so the Tendrils reach. Even to this day, Sino-Western relations remain tense and in tatters because of the history of the West and their attempts to imperialize China through the use of the opium trade. The Tendrils still reach us 150 years later. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I'm not quite sure what the rhyme is here, for the opiate crisis in America— My encounter with the crisis is what set off this series in my mind. All I know is that, if it isn't solved, in a hundred years, we might be looking back and seeing the tendrils of this opiate epidemic extending places where we never expected it to go in history. Is America going to collapse in on itself because of opiates? (laughs) That's not a bet, a take. But it is a careful reminder of how history isn't a simple narrative. Sometimes it's tendrils reach places we never expected it to.
1: High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or find us at our website at HighCrimesandhistory.com.